Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Well, Rod, we're getting close to the deadline for closing the portal, so we're going to talk about the pieces moving in the Michigan State basketball team. And we'll start with the high school recruits because that's sort of the traditional way of rebuilding your team. And let's go through the class of 2023. We'll work our way through 25. And then we're going to talk a little portal. And then we're going to talk a little bit of NIL, which is the name, image, and likeness. Right. So let's be... Oh. So the, 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 first guy to, the first guy to talk about 23, I think, um, would be the guy who's committed. And I didn't have on our list. That's why I'm interjecting. <laughs> is uh, Jeremy Jeremy Fears, uh, who's the point guard out of uh, Joliet, Illinois. Uh, he plays for the uh, Spice Indy Heat EYBL Nike program out of uh, Indiana. And by all accounts, he's had a great spring. He had a good he had a good season at uh, La Lumiere. Um, high school in a uh, prep school in Indiana, you know, high profile school. It's produced uh, Jaron Jackson and several other guys that Michigan state has recruited to one degree or another over the last several years. Uh, Fears is the second guy they've actually gotten a commitment from. He had a really good season for them and he's continued this spring so far had a, had a nice, nice performances in both of the EYBL sessions thus far. Um, including the second one, which was last weekend. We're recording this on May 1st. So a weekend prior uh, was the Indiana stop. And after a one and three first session for his team in EYBL, they went four and oh in the second session. So they've now got a winning record and will presumably still be in the mix for a peach jam spot come this summer. So a lot of that's on him. He's the point guard, but they also need him to score. That's, Speece Indy Heat is generally a pretty good program, but as with most of these uh, AAU teams, it varies year to year as to how many really elite high major talents they have. And his team does not have a boatload of high major guys. So he has to play a really, really important role for them in all respects. His last game, uh, in uh, EYBL play last weekend, so it would have been the Sunday game. I can't recall the opponent, but he had a near triple-double. I believe he had something like 10 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. Yeah. And we're talking about a guy who's probably about 6'1 at the point, so that's an impressive number. The, the, the bottom, and he's been really good this weekend. They're playing a non-shoe company tournament. They're playing the um, Bill Hensley Memorial, um, I think it's run and shoot tournament Fort Wayne, which in the pre shoe circuit days. So let's say go back seven, eight years ago and further that tournament 
in um, in Fort Wayne was one of the preeminent tournaments on the high school calendar. I used to go to it for several years. Um, it was the coming out party for uh, Anthony Davis, for example. I happened to be there that year where he went from kind of an unknown to a guy who had grown eight inches in the course of 12 months and all of a sudden became a mega recruit. His coming out party was at that tournament. It's also uh, where I really, after seeing him once the previous season in high school at Sexton, it's also the place where I really became enamored of Denzel Valentine before Michigan State had actually offered. And it was it was uncertain as to whether they would offer him. Um, I'm sorry, it was heading into his junior year. So he was playing for the 16 and under Mustangs. And he had had an injury. I believe he'd had a knee injury, some kind of lower leg injury. And that was maybe exacerbating what were already some questions around his athleticism. But seeing him several times that weekend in Fort Wayne, I, I was I was doing some stuff online for uh, some of our listeners will remember uh, Sam Hosey was known as the chairman <laughs> on the Spartan Mag board and was to this day, I think, by far the best recruiting coverage guy uh, that has been on the Michigan State side of things, at least. Uh, he was doing some stuff for an outfit called Prep Spotlight at that time, and I, I covered that tournament for him. And I remember posting that. I wasn't sure whether Michigan state was going to get involved because it was unclear as to how they viewed him athletically, but he was the most entertaining player. I saw the entire tournament and um, he was, he was impressive. And, and one of his sidekicks on that team was a guy named Bryn Forbes, by the way. I've heard of him. Um, Was it? Yeah, you've heard of him. So it was, it was interesting, but it's, I've seen, I've seen Keith Appling play at that tournament. Um, they, and they used to get teams from all around the country because, again, this was pre-EYBL, pre-Adidas's circuit, pre-the Under Armour circuit. So the AAU schedule used to be these kind of events, which would be in different parts of the country. Boo Williams put on one in the southeast, like North Carolina, I think. Um, you know, they'd be there'd be events all over the country. So consequently, there would be a bunch of teams like I remember Seattle Rotary, which is a big EYBL program now. They would fly in from the West Coast for this thing. You know, you would get a wide variety of teams geographically, and it was a really good tournament. But now it's kind of a, you know, let's stay sharp <laughs> kind of thing in between EYBL weekends. And uh, it's mostly, I think, Midwest teams. But Fears apparently had another great weekend. Paul Conondike on the Spartan Mag board has been providing coverage all weekend. And Spartan Mag usually does a very good job with that tournament because of the proximity. It's easy for them to get to. And, um, yeah, Fears, by all accounts, has been really, really good. I think the bottom line, what people who have not seen him, and I, and I think because of the fact that he played for La Lu this past season, a lot of our listeners probably did get a chance to see him on occasion he played on television several times i know i saw him maybe three or four times and i don't think that was the entirety of the television appearances he had but uh and i don't say this i want to caution people when they hear what i'm about to say <laughs> i don't think you can expect him to have the career that mateen cleaves had let me emphasize that put that in bold because that means his jersey goes up in the rafters i'm not about to I'm not prepared to predict that for anybody, but 
he reminds me more of Cleves than anybody I can think of between then and now in the Michigan State program. And the reason I say that is he's exceptional in his ability to get to the rim. The reason I, I lean more towards a Cleves comparison than maybe somebody like Kalen Lucas, though, is I think he's much more like like number 12 was in terms of his ability to use penetration to also create opportunities for others. He's a much better, more instinctive passer than Kalen was. Um, and then on top of that, if you've seen him play for Lalu, you know this, and apparently he's doing the same thing for uh, Spice Indy Heat in the AAU season. He's a leader. He's a tough kid. He's a leader. Um, he's the kind of guy that I think will drag others with him. And he's also got the potential to be really, really good defensively. So all that, all those things are in the plus column. And that's why I say he reminds me more of Cleves than anybody else, stylistically at least, and in terms of the components of his game. Obviously, Mateen Cleves was exceptional in some of those areas and that's what made him an all-time great we don't know yet about jeremy fierce where he'll slot in but i think he's got a chance to be a very very good player when you view him in conjunction with guys they've already got jaden akins um trey holloman you you start to see a pattern coming into play in terms of tom Izzo's recruiting you're getting guys that for lack of a better term are old school by Michigan State standards. Their, their style of play reminds you of those teams, uh, the, the first iteration of Izzo's program, really, the Cleves-Charlie Bell era. They, these guys would fit, at least in terms of mindset and style. Uh, like those guys, with at least for the latter two, for Holloman and Fierce, the question mark around them right now is on the shooting end. I wouldn't say that either is the finished product as a jump shooter, but they're not they're not Tom Tom Nairn or AJ Hogart either. I think they fit in to a spot where you can assume they'll at least be passable. The hope is that they'll get to be better than that over time. Jade Nakins obviously I think is a level beyond that as a shooter, but um, all three guys have the potential to be not just good defenders, but I think great defenders. Um, and they're all capable of handling the ball. So you're starting, you know, for this coming year's team, obviously you've still got AJ Hogard, you've still got um, Walker on board. So there's a lot of guys either already on the roster or coming down the pike who can handle the ball, who can run an offense, create for others, be a playmaker. And that seems to be the way that Tom Ezzo has decided to go is that he's not going to get caught short on a point guard ever again. But more than that, I think it's almost a lock that you're going to see these guys playing together at one time with each other. And, and there, there certainly is a track record of success in recent years for high level teams who have been able to do that, who've had multiple guys. And that's why I think it's, I had wondered when they were recruiting fears of, well, how does this make sense? They just brought Holloman in. Aikens isn't, isn't, hasn't been around that long. And they're continuing. We're going to talk about another guy in the 24 class they're recruiting who fits into that mold, Fat Fat Brooks. Izzo's not stopping. He's continuing to assemble these guys. And I think you can assume there will be some differences in terms of how MSU looks to play to some extent. I think we will see even more penetration than we've seen lately. 
but more of an emphasis on that because uh, it fits the skill sets. And then obviously, I think perimeter defense is going to probably look a little different. Kind of gone old school. He's and it's sort of come full circle, right? It's almost like bell bottoms are back in. He's gone back to the original yeah. <laughs> recruiting strategy. Yeah. I had a yeah. question about recruiting in general when it, when you're looking about and evaluating high school players. It seems to me, and I, I've heard a lot about that when you're when you're watching these players, you can evaluate their offensive skills pretty pretty well. Although the it's the defensive end that you really don't know because that the, these AA teams don't emphasize it or they don't have the opportunity to really put together good defensive sets. And it sometimes Both. elevates the offensive stats from another player because they you know may not face the same defensive you know the strategy yeah. is that is that pretty accurate you always have to kind of always wonder defensively if these players can do it outside just saying well that guy's athletic yes i i think that there's a lot of truth to that and some aau programs it's they don't care but i think a lot of times it is a function of what you suggested that there's just not the time i mean here's the bottom line for people who don't realize this if you think that aau programs these teams are functioning the way a high school team or a college team does guess again, (laughs) they don't practice much together because you've got kids, not only from all around a state, but oftentimes and fierce is an example from a neighboring state. So the kid might live in Illinois or Michigan, but he plays for an Indiana based team. What do you think the likelihood is that they're going to practice much? (laughs) Yeah. It's enough to get everybody to the games. So, yeah, there, there's definitely truth. You can see athleticism. In Fears' case, though, with Lalu, not only is he playing in a structured environment, but he's also, because of the nature of that school's program, he is playing high-level competition consistently. And he's playing it within an actual system. So I, I do feel confident with him. I, I would say this. This has always been my rule of thumb in terms of high school players. I think you have to be careful about coming down too much on a high school player in terms of their defensive ability, because sometimes it's just not going to get tested very much. And sometimes it can be they're not in a program, which is really teaching it very well. So I don't I'll give you an example. Keith Appling, I thought, was an okay defender in high school when he was at Detroit Pershing. I had no idea he was going to come in and be as good as he was immediately defensively. Uh, This year's team, Max Christie, I don't think anybody knew that he was going to be as good defensively as he was. It's easier to spot offense. I, I will say this. If you do see a guy at the high school level who stands out, who is obviously notable, as a defensive player, that's a pretty safe bet that's going to translate. Okay. So just because you don't see it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a problem. You kind of have to wait till they get an MSU's program or whatever school they're playing at to see for sure. But if a guy shows that potential as Fears has, as Holloman has in his high school program, it's a pretty safe bet. Aikens did in high school. He was playing for Sunrise Christian. That was his role his senior year was a defensive stopper because they had, they already had Kennedy Chandler who was their offensive leader at the point. So Jaden was kind of a secondary guy offensively, 
but a guy they really relied on defensively. And you could see it playing high level opponents. He was great defensively and that translated to MSU. So I have, I have no worries about fears. I think he's going to be really good defensively and same for Holloman next year. Okay. And then, so let's go through the, that's the guy they've got. Right. Yeah. So let's go through the other 2023 targets. We'll start with Xavier Booker, 611 uh, player out of Indianapolis Cathedral. Yeah. Uh, massive priority recruit for Michigan State. And Tom Izzo usually with, at the most, a guy, maybe two a year will do this, where he is relentless. He is at every single game they play during AAU season. That guy in this class is Xavier Booker. It has been notable. He hasn't, I don't think he's missed a single one of his games over each of the previous two live weekends. So not this weekend. This wasn't a live weekend at, at the Spies tournament. But um, last weekend and then two weekends prior to that, he does, for the record, he does not play EYBL. He plays for um, George Hill All-Stars, who are a, a grassroots team that plays on the New York to LA circuit, which is not bad. There have been a lot of high level guys who've played on that circuit. So don't take that to mean anything in terms of level of competition per se. But um, Izzo made a point getting out of Indianapolis. I think the event he was playing in was in Louisville. So not too far, but he made it a priority to be at that kid's games. Uh, it's an interesting recruitment because Booker has been, and maybe I should describe him a little bit first. We're talking about a guy who fits, and I'm being very general here, but fits the Jaron Jackson, Marcus Bainham kind of mold physically, maybe throw in some Adrian Payne in terms of his offensive skills. He's an extremely skilled player. There have been clips floating around over the last few weeks of him playing this spring where you see him rip a rebound down and go 94 feet himself for the finish <laughs> and look legitimate, look smooth doing it. He's a, he's a very good jump shooter. He's got, I don't know what his wingspan is. I'm certain it's plus seven feet. He's six, his height's listed at six eleven. I'm not sure if he's in that seven, four, seven, five range, but I think he, I think he might be the questions. So skills are not a question. The questions around him have had to do mostly with physical strength. Um, he's listed at 220, so he could probably use some additional muscle. Got another year of high school to go. Presumably an offseason and a weight training program at the collegiate level would help also. Um, but uh, we're talking about a guy who has really excited people this spring. So he's been a consistent top 100 guy everywhere. But it varied as to how high the various the, the services have had him. I believe that um, Rivals, I think I've got this right, Rivals currently has him 38th in the country. 24-7 has him more in the 80s, but they've indicated they're gonna he's gonna take a big jump up. I've seen some people suggest he should be top 10 based on what he's done this spring. So that's the kind of spring he's had. Coming out of last weekend, or I'm sorry, coming out of two, three weeks ago. The word was that Duke and Kentucky were about to get involved. Thus far, it's been primarily Michigan State, Notre Dame, Purdue, and then to some extent, Indiana. But the first three were considered to be the lead pack with pretty much everybody suggesting that Michigan State was out in front. The only official visit he's taken thus far has been to MSU. He took one a few weeks back. Um, 
But supposedly Duke, Kentucky, and maybe others were about to get involved. The thing is, last weekend, a live weekend, I believe I've got this right. Duke had an assistant at one game. Kentucky, I don't believe, watched him. And neither has offered. So the way I read that, and and for those who are following, I mean, Duke has been going crazy on the recruiting trails. Uh, John Shire, for whatever reason, has put together a couple of classes, the one that's going to be freshman this year, and then this group we're talking about now, the 23s, that is, at least in terms of the rankings, is on par better with anything K ever did. Wow. Why? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a good answer for it other than Duke Mystique. And Shire is known as a very good recruiter, but Jesus Christ, the guy hasn't coached a game yet. It's strange to me, um, and I'm not suggesting anything particularly nefarious, at least not more than Duke does generally, (laughs) but um, it's weird to me, but nevertheless, it's true. And, And so... The reality is that they may not view Xavier Booker as the necessity that Michigan State does, for example. Or the other thing, which should not be discounted here at all, is that schools like Duke and Kentucky have taken a look at the recruitment and decided, you know what? Michigan State's so far out in front in this thing, it's not worth it. I would not rule that out as a motivator for why they're not coming in harder. Or they just just don't – sometimes kids have an interest in getting as many offers as they can get, and particularly from high-level programs, because it usually means you get bumped in the rankings, blah, blah, blah. In the old days, meaning before the last few months, it was about ego primarily or perception. Now it's actually perhaps got – we're going to talk about this later – it might have some financial benefit in terms of you know where you're ranked, how you're seen as a player. What might that mean for you in terms of an NIL deal? So it's actually something tangible that might be attached to it. But in any event, Booker appeared to indicate that he was interested in talking to schools, to anybody. But I think it's possible those schools have discerned that, yeah, he'd like us involved for the boost that it would provide, but Michigan state's really where he's at. I don't know that I'm just suggesting it. It's strange in terms of the flurry of all this supposed interest that it did doesn't appear as if it was really followed through on. So with regard to Booker and Michigan state, I think you still have to feel very, very good if you're a Michigan state fan and he would be a really important pickup because he's a very different kind of player then say Jackson Kohler, who, by the way, played this weekend in the Allen Iverson all-star game and uh, was sensational. Scored the last nine points of the game to win it for his side. Had 20 on the game, which was, wasn't the team MVP, uh, but he maybe should have been. And if you, if you saw that game or you've seen some of the highlights, you'll see why people like me are so excited about him at least on the offensive end, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's the most talented offensive big man they brought in since Zach Randolph. Right now, the, the point he's at, his skill set. Now, that's offense. We don't know <laughs> right. what kind of defender he's going to be. All that stuff matters. But anyway, Kohler is very much a skills plus fundamentals kind of guy. The questions with him are 
on the athletic end. You don't know yet how that's going to translate. I think he'll work hard, but that's not always the whole story. Look at somebody like Luca Garza as an example. Right. Um, Xavier Booker is a very, very skilled guy too, but he's an athlete. He's a pure athlete. The questions with him revolve around strength and toughness, how, how badly he wants to stick his nose in and how strong he is. And so that's why, you know, looking at guys like Marcus Bainham and Jaron Jackson as comparison points works. And, and those are two different ends of the spectrum. Jaron Jackson had those questions, and then he got bigger and stronger in a hurry. And you saw that all of a sudden the mindset people worried about when he was a recruit was no problem at Michigan State. Marcus Bainham took him a while to get those things solved, you know? Right. So, but, but I think Booker is much more of a sure thing than Marcus Bainham was. Right. I, I want to be clear about that. I'm just using that kind of as a comparison point to give listeners an idea as to where the issues might be. Um, I, I'll, I'll also, I'll end with this. Uh, I saw a couple national guys, one of whom was Eric Bossy, who used to be the main national guy for rivals. And then he switched about a year or so ago to 24 seven. And there was another guy I'm drawing a blank on what service he was from, but the article had those two guys mentioned about Booker both said, if if you're evaluating it right now, Michigan State's the choice. They're they're the favorite. Right. So we'll see what happens, how it evolves. But right now, you should feel good about Xavier Booker. Yeah, and it's always it it's encouraging to have a person who comes in at the five who's not as much uh, doesn't require as much work as they ha- as they have like a Maddie Sissoko or or even a you know a big yes. right. So that's encouraging. So let's move on to not raw. Right. Yeah, not raw. Not raw. Uh, moving on to uh, Devin Royal. He's a six seven forward from Pickerington Central in Columbus, uh, in Ohio. And why don't you talk a little bit about him and sort of how he's different? I mean, obviously he's forward, but uh, he's got a lot of offers and he's been taking a lot of visits. He's a, this is another guy. The the commonality on most of the guys that and Michigan State's not got a ton of offers out there. They've got by my count, they've got four offers active, and then they have fears as a commitment in that class. The commonality seems to be all of these guys are on the ascent. Devin Royal definitely fits that mold. Uh, he's from Pickering Central, which, by the way, people should uh, note is a real athletic powerhouse in Ohio, more so for football guys than basketball guys. So Xavier Henderson, Michigan State defensive back, Pickering Central guy. Uh, Taco Charlton, who was at Michigan and has been in the NFL, Pickering Central guy. There are others I'm forgetting. Um, But there have been some basketball players out of that school, and Royal appears to be one of the better ones in recent years. Uh, He plays for All Ohio Red, which is an EYBL team, traditionally a very good well-run program and hearkening back to something you said a a bit ago you know when you're talking about defense and how much you can evaluate based on a play etc all ohio red traditionally is an exception to the rule that is not a team where they roll the balls out that team is usually extremely well coached i'll give you an example foster lawyers last year that team the best players were Foster Lawyer, Thomas Kithier, and um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on it. It was a shooting guard, Dane Goodwin, shooting guard from Ohio who went to Notre Dame. That team won its division in EYBL and as 16 and unders 
had won the Peach Jam, which is the de facto national championship for Nike school Nike programs. Uh, they didn't win it as seniors, but they were in it and they won their division over the four weekends. So if you do happen to be one of those few teams like all Ohio Reds, City Rocks out of northern uh, or upstate New York is another example. Maybe a couple of others. Uh, Mocan Elite out of Missouri, Kansas. If you're one of these few programs that actually really has a system and coaches and, and looks coherent, you can have a lot of success in terms of the wins and losses, even if you're not great from a talent perspective. I think Royal as a talent clearly tracks better than Foster or Goodwin or Kithier, but I just point that out. He's in a really good program. Um, MSU has come in a little bit late, but it doesn't appear to be too late. Uh, they offered and did an in-home visit with the full staff this past week. And from what I can tell, it appears to be uh, received very well. That's not a surprise. Um, I don't think Michigan State has recruited anybody from Pickering Central in basketball, but they have in football, as I noted, Xavier Henderson came from there. Um, and there's certainly a known quantity in that area. And the AAU program, All Ohio Red, for sure, Michigan State, it, go back to Travis Walton, Nick Ward played for them, uh, obviously Kithier and Lawyer. So there have been a lot of Michigan State guys that have, oh, Adrian Payne, a lot of Michigan State guys have gone through that program. So it's not a surprise that even though some other schools have offered before MSU, that MSU was able to get in there. Um, he also got offers this week from Wisconsin, Rutgers, and Missouri. He had previously had an offer from Ohio State for several months, along with Penn State, Marquette, Iowa State, Florida State, and others. So we're talking about a guy that has had a good offer sheet, maybe not quite elite elite, but we're talking about some very good programs. Michigan State likes his versatility at both ends. They think he can defend multiple positions. They think he's got the skill set to play on the wing, maybe play some small ball four, they think he can handle and pass the ball. Uh, if there's a weakness, it's that jump shooting is not yet a strength, but it's not seen as a big weakness yet either. But that would be an area uh, of development. Uh, the expectation is over the next month or six weeks or so, uh, let's say month or two, uh, he's going to take officials to Ohio State and MSU. Now, the way the rules work now is you could take five officials as a junior and then five as a senior. These two would be his final two as a junior. He's already visited officially Marquette, Iowa State, and Penn State. The perception seems to be, from what I understand, that Penn State may actually be in the lead, hmm. not Ohio State, which is interesting. And if you're a Michigan State fan, that probably makes you feel better on two levels. One, it would mean he's got a willingness to leave the state. Michigan State's had a lot of success in Ohio, but, you know, sometimes kids want to play for the home sure, state school. Yeah. That's not unusual. So it doesn't appear to necessarily be a lock here. The other thing is, quite honestly, if, you're, if your main competition is Penn State versus it being Ohio State, no offense to Micah Shrewsbury, maybe he'll change perceptions, but you feel, you feel okay about that if you're Tom Izzo, I would think. Um, it's hard to know how to handicap this one since MSU is so new to the recruitment, but uh, for all the reasons I've suggested, I think that they're in this um, and there's, they're definitely serious about him when they, when they go three deep, 
and that's all they can do right now because they don't have the third assistant hired. Um, that tells you something. Sure. And Izzo's apparently been in steady contact since a little bit before they offered. So I, I think they're prioritizing Royal for sure. Okay. We'll see how it goes. Great. Uh, then we'll move on to Braylon Green. He's a 6'3 wing from Ypsilanti, uh, hometown of Gabe Brown. And they've been looking at him for quite a while because he's an in-state guy. I'm sure he's easy to follow. Yeah. I, I don't – this is a really, really tough one to read. Braylon Green, just to describe him as a player, 6'3-ish, but he would he would be in the – and I'm, I'm using a very rough descriptor here – you would think about him in the Shannon Brown, Mo Ager kind of mold, ultra athletic on the wing, not really one of these. I've seen him at earlier points in his career described as a point guard. And I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Definitely. He's not in the mold that some of these other guys we've talked about, Holloman, Akins, Fears, Fat Fat Brooks. He's not that kind of guy. He would probably be a pure wing at MSU, ultra athletic, also has a, a decent jumper, um, but there's a there's a couple things. Despite the fact that he's visited Michigan State, Michigan State's recruited him for a long time. I just I don't know how to feel about the recruitment. Um, it's hard to get a read on. I, I saw some things Paul Conondike mentioned <clears throat> this weekend, which weren't incredibly specific as to what the issues were, but I can surmise what they might be. Um, he had started the year as a teammate of fears, the AAU season rather as a teammate of fears with the Indy heat. And then all of a sudden he was with the family last weekend, the Michigan based team, Detroit based team. I just assumed that was part of his normal pattern, which he's skipped around a lot. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, he's played for a lot of high schools. He's played for different AAU programs every year. You know, it's it's just been the way, and that's not uncommon these days. But Paul suggested that he might not have had a choice leaving Spies into Heat, and that it wasn't down to him. It wasn't about him, which then leads me to conclude perhaps it's about people around him. Um, I will mention for people who've been paying attention to this stuff for a long time, his brother is a guy named Alex Legion who had a wild, wild <laughs> recruitment that had him committed to Michigan. Uh, he did time at, uh, he ended up playing there. He did time at Illinois, I, I seem to recall. It just bounced around a lot. It was never a recruitment that Michigan State was very serious in because of the stuff around him. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if that may be coming to bear in this one too. And, uh, We'll just have to see how it plays out. He's a, in basketball terms. He's he's a big time talent, and Michigan State seems to like him. And I've not heard any knocks on the kid in terms of like on court stuff, selfishness, any of that. But it it may end up being one that Michigan State just doesn't want to play in in the end or go full blast. Uh, the word has been for a while that it's kind of MSU in Kansas, but it's been unclear how hard Kansas is going at him. And so I think the, the sense had been that it would be likely that he'd play for Michigan State, but I, I you just don't know. And with MSU offering a couple of wings within the last week or two, that would further suggest that maybe they're starting to – well, they are starting to at least broaden their scope. And does he have an offer yet? Is that what you're – 
He does. Okay, so he's had an offer for a long okay, time. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, and and they've he's been on campus multiple times. I mean, he's that's a lot of people. In fact, there was a point that he tweeted something out that he was still open to other schools because the perception was starting to build that he was a Michigan State lock. Ah. That goes back like to the fall. Um, but I just, yeah, it's a hard one. If he ends up in Michigan State, it won't surprise me. But it's a hard one to get a, a really good read on. Um, so, and, and again, you could read the offers in the last week or so to Royal and to another kid, Scotty Middleton, we'll talk about in a second, um, who are also wings, might make you conclude that, well, maybe they're not putting all their eggs in that basket. Sure. And I don't think that would be fair. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing, too, with the portal now being so active. I imagine these kids are going to look at who's coming in and then how many years that person has that comes into the program, right? Like if suddenly a wing shows up who's a sophomore, well, that makes it a lot different than a guy who comes in as a senior, right? And so it's going to change what your playing time and all that. It is it is crazy right now. We'll talk about it later when we get the portal on NIL. But across college basketball, I mean, if you think Michigan State's had it rough with Max Christie, you know, looking at possibly turning pro, um, and Julius Marble electing to hit the portal. Uh, it's nothing. Michigan State's <laughs> been a bastion of stability thus far compared to most or many programs. Um, it is crazy. It's basically not too different from AAU in that guys can shift around, you know, and it, and it can be based on some of the criteria that you just mentioned. They're looking at high school guys. There's, there's two elements to it. One is what you suggested, that they're looking at a depth chart, which they've always done, but now it's more fluid and trying to uh, trying to ascertain where they're going to fall in that. Um, the second thing is, though, and I've, I've felt this way since the portal came into being uh, in, in, in the current rules where you get this free transfer. Uh, if you are a high school player, and you get an offer that you like, you better grab it. Yeah. If you, if you are a top 50 guy, okay, you, you're probably safe. Beyond that, man, you should not wait. because and, and this is happening. If you follow this stuff the way I do, and I'm sure some of our listeners do, you know this. You are seeing guys who are probably going to be very good players who are getting squeezed out because of what the portal is doing. So... It's a, I mean, it's a market, right? And so at some point uh, people adjust to what the market conditions are. And in this case, it's better get going, <laughs> better grab the, the spots you do. That's it. Right. And, and with COVID, it's sort of the same thing, right? You lost kind of a year of eligibility for lots of players. And so it, it, for them too, there were less spots available at the, the higher programs and, you know. Well, what it's, what COVID's done is because you got that free year. Right. It's jammed it up even further. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, look at Michigan State. It's this will they, won't they with yeah. Joey and with Gabe and with Bainham, you know, yeah, and we're going to be, and, the, and the, that we're going to be living with the next couple of years still. Right. I mean, cause he like AJ Hogard would be a qualifier yes. and, and Walker. I mean, that class, yeah. the class, right. The people who were in school in 2021 are going, are, are all going to, regardless of class standing in that year, if you were in college that year, you've got that extra year if you choose to take it. So yeah, it's, it's, we've still got a couple more years to run with that. 
for sure. Well, then let's talk about Scotty Milton, the last one we're going to talk about in the 2023 class. Uh, he's a 6'6 wing from Sunrise Christian, where Tum Tum is coaching. Which, and by the way, how has Tum Tum been doing yeah. as coach there? I mean, he's been, it's his second or third year now? Well, uh, this was his first year. Oh, first, okay. He just completed. He, he coached their grad team. So Sunrise and some other prep schools like them often have two teams. The, the one that gets the publicity and is on the TV and has all the McDonald's All-Americans is their regular prep school team. But then they will also have typically a grad transfer uh, team, which are guys who have done their four years of high school. It's It looks more like traditionally what prep schools were. Way back <laughs> in the 1980s, 1990s, Prep school's primary purpose was a place, besides the people who had a lot of money and would go there for the academics and all of that, but for athletes, for basketball and football players, prep schools primarily were there to provide some academic polish. So if you were a guy who was struggling in high school, and maybe you weren't, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember Prop 48, yes, which caused guys to miss their freshman year of eligibility due to academics. Um, it provided an opportunity to polish yourself academically. Uh, and it meant you didn't necessarily have to go to a JUCO for two years to do that. You could do one year in a prep school and then be re be recruited and be eligible as a freshman. Uh, so you wouldn't lose any college eligibility and you would, you'd only have to do one year instead of two. Um, so academics was part of it. Sometimes it would also be a year for athletic development just an extra year before you went to college to get better bigger stronger etc um the team that tom is coaching is that team so now it tends to be more i think about the polishing your game we're going to talk about micah parish a guy in the portal that msu has shown interest in um and he actually went to a prep school for that reason okay after four years at river rouge he went to a prep school in Arizona. <clears throat> That's the team Tom is coaching, but he's fully in the sunrise program. And he's also now, interestingly, an assistant from Mocan elite, which is an AYBL program out of Missouri and Kansas. That area has become over the last 10 years or so, I think one of, if not the preeminent AAU program in the country, they're really, really good year in, year out. And yet they're also well-coached. They have a system, et cetera. So if you're a Michigan State fan, this is a good thing. Michigan State has already had a presence with those programs. Malik Hall went to Sunrise, went to uh, played for Mocan Elite. Tom did as well. So they've had guys in recent years from there, but I think we're probably going to see more of it with Tom involved. And it's also a great opportunity for Tom to build his resume and, and maybe get back into the collegiate coaching mix in the near future, which certainly could include a future at Michigan state. I would write that off at all. Uh, Middleton again, MSU late to the game here, uh, six, six wing from sunrise Christian. I believe he also plays for Mocan elite um, top 50 ish rated guy. He's an athletic versatile player gets to the rim effectively. Um, not exactly the same player as Royal. I think he's maybe a little more athletic but again, the issue is he needs to hone his shot a little bit more, but they like the versatility at both ends. 
um, really nice at, at Michigan State. If you can guard multiple positions, that's a huge deal. And so that's why they're interested. Uh, he had recently announced the top five of Kansas, Connecticut, Ohio State, Seton Hall, and Texas A&M. But the fact that MSU came in after that suggests that they have reason to believe they'll be under active consideration. I guess we'll find out. But given Tom's presence, I can't imagine they'd be taking a flyer and wasting their time. Sure. Doesn't make any sense that that would be the case. Right. And then speaking of Tom, Tom, uh, it would be only appropriate that the Michigan State would get Fat Fat. And so Fat Fat Brooks is 6'2 combat guard. He'd be the 2024 class. I'm sure this would be a joke that'll be told a million times. So I thought I'd get out early before he <laughs> arrives. Yeah. He plays a Grand Rapids Catholic Central. Yeah. Um, he's a really interesting player. Um, he's been known since he was in junior high. So it's no surprise that he's being talked about in, in this context and Grand Rapids Catholic central, of course, um, the, uh, alma mater of Marcus Bingham and they've become an even better program since Marcus left. They won a state title two years ago this year. I believe they were runners up. I think they got beat by Williamston in the Lansing area for the uh, division two, the old class B state championship, but a very, very good high school team, very, very good high school program. Um, friendly to Michigan state. Um, and, and fat, fat also plays for the family he plays for their 16 and under team. And he's continued to progress as a player. And he's another guy that has had a really, really strong spring thus far. Um, playing for the family 16 and under team. Uh, it's It'll be interesting to me to see where he slots in because I had always thought of him as a point guard, but there had been some talk that Michigan State sees him as another one of these combo guys. And you wonder at what point can they not take a guy like that every year? But they seem to be, he's, to my knowledge, I believe he's the only 2024 guy with an offer thus far from MSU. So that's not that unusual. Typically, I, I would expect to see some more going out this spring and summer because this is typically the time of year where they do that with guys of that age. But um, it's he's an impressive player. And you're going to hear me say the same thing I've heard about or I've said about a lot of these guys. He's impressive athletically, has a really, really nice ability to get to the rim. He can make plays for others as well needs to keep developing as a shooter. So same strengths, same thing to work on as some of these other guys, but um, definitely a name to watch. I think it's going to be interesting. As far as I know, Michigan State is his only high major offer thus far. I would also throw this out there just to keep an eye on. My understanding is his family is very much a Michigan fan family. Mm -hmm. Now I have not heard a lot about Michigan getting involved. They certainly haven't offered him yet. I know that much. If they were to get involved, I don't know what change that might bring to the dynamic. Uh, but for Michigan state to get in as early as they did, they offered him, I think in March. So to offer him while his, while he's still a sophomore in high school tells you how they feel about him as a player. And ultimately the, Commitment, even if he were to say commit to Michigan State, it doesn't hold until when signing day, his senior year, right? Which is right. February or something like that. Yeah. So 
even if he said yeah. I'm Michigan State person or Michigan, it can certainly change uh, up until that point. Yeah, I, I just throw out that thing about his family there because people should understand. Oh, that. sure. Yeah, um, I'm I'm 99% certain that's accurate. So I don't know if if Juwan Howard decided that although boy he he seems to love portal point guards but it cost him one of his high school guys actually which we'll talk about yeah. but um if he were to decide to get involved i don't know what impact that might have or other schools too i don't know if the kid wants to get out of state or you know what it is but right now michigan state is the game in town among high majors yeah well the nice thing about grand rapids is an hour away so you're far from home but not too close uh, you're not uh, too far away either right, right. So finally, moving to 2025 class, Jalen Harrison or Harrelson, he's a 6'5", 200-pound wing from Fishers, Indiana, home of Gary Harris. Yeah, not the same high school, but the same area. Yeah. Gary Harris was from Fishers, but he played at, I think, Hamilton Southeastern. This guy, Harrelson, plays for uh, Fishers. This is an interesting guy, and I got to give credit to Paul Conondike. He was all over this for Spartan Mag um, this weekend at the um, – Bill Hensley event at, uh, in Fort Wayne. Uh, Harrelson is a really impressive specimen physically. Uh, most of what I'm going to say is based on what Paul has had to say about him. In fairness, I, I've, that, I've read that. I've seen some clips. Physically, and, and this is a kid, as you said, 2025. So he just finished his freshman year. Yeah. He's playing up a level for Spee Cindy Heat. So he's playing with guys that are fat fats age. He's playing with guys who just finished their sophomore year and apparently playing extremely well. MSU appears to be prioritizing him. And Paul had mentioned, he doesn't think it'll be a surprise if they offer soon, which is unusual. They usually don't offer guys. The, the high priority guys usually get offered after they're usually in the, in the spring summer between their sophomore and junior years. This would be, if they do it soon, this would be a year prior to that. So it tells you how they feel about him. And from the video I saw, I understand it. He's already a Big Ten wing physically. He's 6'5", listed at 200, but he's he's put together. He's solid. And a lot of the clips I saw had him getting to the rim and drawing contact. So he seems like a guy who wants to draw contact, likes to draw contact, that will endear him to Tom Izzo. He's very athletic. I saw one play where he went down, went past people, blew past people and dunked, and it was it was a high-level athletic play. Um, IU's already offered him. He's got some interest from Villanova as well. Expect MSU to be a major player. I mean, this is an area, an AAU program that they are used to recruiting. The proximity means they can get down to see him a lot. Um, so it's not surprising that they are they are in this thing. Uh, Paul mentioned he thinks he's got the look of a guy who will be a McDonald's All-American. If that's true, then it would not be surprising to see some of the other powers programs get involved from around the country. You never know where it will go, but it appears that he is very flattered and very interested by Michigan State's um, early involvement with him. So. A name to watch, but a long, long way away. <laughs> well, then let's move to the next part of building your team with rosters with the portal. I mean, it used to be a grad transfers, uh, and now it's moved to the portal. And as we spoke last time, which was, I don't know, a week ago, there were 1,500 players yeah. in the portal. At I'm guessing there are about 2,000 by now. Today's deadline. So we still, as of this recording, 
do not know 100% of all the people who will be in the portal. It's possible that people will wait to the last minute to get themselves in the in the mix. And I think to many people who are concerned about Michigan State not being real active in the portal, I think it's not unwise to wait to see where, where the portal is and where you know where it finishes, I guess, especially when you have so many players. To, to jump in and grab someone now, you'd, you'd hate to grab, say, a, a five-year sort of lukewarm on and then Trace Jackson Davis shows up, right, or something like that, and then you've you felt you really missed the boat uh, with, and so I don't know. I mean, I guess that'd be the, and so then I guess that goes, there's maybe that point. And then the second one is just, you know, what is Michigan State looking for? Because we have questions about Christie and Marble right now, as far as the roster spots that are on the team, one's in the portal, one's looking at the draft. Yeah. Um, it, it's a really, really complicated picture. And touching on for a second, the bit about, some being frustrated about MSU not being quote unquote aggressive in the portal. Um, There can always be surprises. Julius Marble was a surprise. My understanding is Michigan state did not see that coming. Um, But you should not assume that Michigan state is not keenly aware of, you know, we're sitting here, we've got about five and a half hours left as we're recording this, where guys could enter. And over the last couple hours, I'm not sure who else has come in. But up until that point, there's a lot of names, as you said, there are more that could come in. And if you assume that Michigan State is flying blind in this, um, let me assure you, you're wrong. (laughs) They've got a pretty good idea of who seems likely or possible to enter. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is relative to MSU's activity level, you have to think about two things when you're, when you're playing this game. One is, is a guy truthfully a good fit for your program and no stats that are put up at a mid major or even another high major possibly don't tell me that they don't answer that. Michigan State is a unique place. It is a unique system that has unique requirements, right? And uh, particularly for big men, you can be an old school big man. Look at somebody like Zach Eady. Zach Eady is a great fit at Purdue. Nobody would ever say, well, that's not a good college player. Of course not. Would he be a great fit at Michigan State? Mm, No. No. No, he wouldn't because he can't play defense the way Tom Izzo wants to, and he can't run the floor. So you have to keep these things in mind. A guy has to actually be a fit for what MSU needs out of players and also be a fit off the court, be a fit in terms of personality, be a good teammate, a lot of different things. I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but I I would suggest to you, Tom Izzo has never been seen as a guy who shies away from recruiting, doesn't like recruiting at some level, and isn't good at it. So if he's not jumping at that name you saw and became aware of for the first time in your life on Twitter two days ago, consider there might actually be a reason, at least in his mind. And what he knows is far more than any of us will ever know. Sure. About all of it. So I understand the consternation because people look at the five spot in particular and see, well, you got an incoming freshman 
We don't know how he's going to hold up defensively. Again, I think offensively, I think he's good to go. I think he was good to go 12 months ago at the Big Ten level. But defensively, we're not going to know until we see it. And then Matty Sissoko, who frankly has struggled to be cons- to make a consistent impact. He's shown flashes, but that's it. I get it. But I also, I know that Tom Izzo wants to win more than any of us. <laughs> And I also believe that he's probably got a better idea of how to do so than any of us. So I would stress patience. That's what I guess I would say. Um, Another element of all this is what it, and it kind of gets back to something you were talking about a few minutes ago about how it affects how guys view their place in a roster. If you start adding guys, you don't know what it's going to do to your existing team. Last year, a lot of people, and I will include myself in that category, really felt like MSU would be well-served to add a veteran wing, not necessarily a star, but somebody who had experience, who played a lot, and could help, particularly defensively, because there were questions about what Max Christie would be. Now, the way it played out, that was not, relevant because Max Christie was far better defensively than I think any of us thought. And so it wasn't an issue, but I was assuming there was a possibility that you were going to need somebody who could be used in a way to at least hold him accountable defensively. Didn't end up being a concern. Um, What I was told, and I know others have heard this as well, that MSU didn't want to make a move because they were concerned in part on what that might do to the combination of guys they already had on hand. And if you don't think that's real, take a look a few miles to the Southeast at what has happened over the last day or so at the university of Michigan, they added, they were trying to add a kid named Terrence Shannon, who was a wing. And there were all kinds of controversies around credits transferring and Texas Tech's coach, not, helping out and blah, blah, blah. So he ended up not going to Michigan where a lot of people thought he was going to end up. Instead, he's going to be at Illinois. After that, or in the midst of that, they took a commitment from a kid um, named uh, Jalen Llewellyn, who had a great year at Princeton, hit the portal and originally committed to Clemson and then pulled out of that. And now is at Michigan. Llewellyn is best as I can tell a combo guard. He only averaged two and a half assists a game last year. So I don't, I don't think he's a pure point guard. Admittedly, I haven't seen a lot of them. I've actually got a message into a, another Spartan mag board member who has a son playing at a rival Ivy school. And I, I want to get a, a firsthand take on Llewellyn just for my own purposes. Cause right now it looks to me like he's going to have to be a point guard at Michigan, which might not be good. Right. Um, consequently, they add a kid who I think is a combo guard, but maybe, He was sold on the idea of being a point guard at Michigan. And Frankie Collins, an incumbent who was a backup last year, was a freshman last year, struggled for about two-thirds of the season, but was actually pretty effective down the stretch. I certainly remember that game at Chrysler. I didn't enjoy his presence very much. (laughs) He played well, yeah. (laughs) Um, And he was good in the NCAA tournament. Now, he's got problems. I don't think he's a a megastar. He can't shoot. He's a horrible jump shooter, but he looks a lot like a young version of Xavier Simpson to me in terms of style of play. And you could do a lot worse. Frankie Collins elected to hit the portal. 
And he's another guy, go back to Braylon Green. Frankie Collins played at four high schools in four years. And now he went to Michigan for a year and he's going to be at another college next year. So that's six schools in six years. This is 2022 in college basketball. You could say college sports, but I think basketball, it's maybe even more pronounced than football just because of the numbers. It seems that way. Um, and I don't think that's what Juwan Howard wanted to have happen. I don't think he anticipated it. And now he's in a position where he's got at the point guard, he's got an incoming freshman named Doug McDaniels, who I don't think people are sold on being an instant impact guy. And this kid Llewellyn, who doesn't seem to me to be a real point guard. So maybe Michigan goes back in the portal again for another guy. I don't know, but they wanted Frankie Collins to be in the mix and now he's not. And we've still got some time. They're rumored to maybe be losing a couple of other guys. Kobe Bufkin and Terrence Williams, I've seen rumors about. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, I think you got to be really careful about how you play this. Because, you know, and this, a lot of people started screaming this year because you got to find reasons to complain if MSU is not winning every game. Um, that, oh, Michigan State had two unused scholarships. What's the point in that? They needed to fill them. No, it isn't necessarily how it works. And if you look around major college basketball, you are seeing it more, and you're going to continue to see it more, in my opinion, teams not using all 13 slots. Why? Because they want to keep the guys they've got. Yeah. And the more guys they add, the more chances there are that somebody sees a threat and decides to leave. Now, the advantage to waiting until after midnight tonight is what you were suggesting, I think. Yeah. After that, you can't enter the portal. So it's not even just about, well, we want to see who's the totality of who's out there. But it's also our guys could still transfer, but at least they can't be immediately eligible somewhere. So they'll probably give it a second thought yeah. about leaving. Um, you got to be careful. You know, MSU last year, the way they ended up trying to address that wing issue was, I think it was in June or July, they announced that um, Jason Whitens, who was a um, two-year starter at Western Michigan, came in as a preferred walk-on. So they did actually try to address it. They just didn't do it with a higher-profile guy. And he got hurt, didn't end up playing. He might be back this year, for all I know. Um, and if he's healthy, he could help. But, uh, you know, that this is – Roster management is a 24-7 game now. It never stops. Yep. And you know what's the absolute truth as well? There are only 200 minutes to play in a basketball game, right? No matter. Yep. And you have to divide that amongst however many players you have on the team. And you can have 100 players or five players. But you're only going to get 200 minutes outside of an overtime game. So uh, let's start addressing what Michigan State is looking for. Because I think you mentioned you mentioned that yeah. Marble may or may not go. And I think, you know, that's the other thing, too, that they're players who are in the portal they you know may not find anyone that wants them or they may not find a match for them and they stay where they are uh what's the situation with max christie because is this something that you think michigan state's going to fill i mean i think most people would say even if marble stayed they'd be looking for a five just because you may be a little unsure about Sissoko. Uh, I, I would i would disagree with that slightly now speaking for myself I believe that would have been the prudent course of action because you don't know about Kohler. You don't know if Sissoko is going to make enough strides to help. And Marble, 
is a very, very good offensive player, but, and I'm saying this knowing he could well be back in East Lansing. I won't change my opinion because it's the opinion I've had for a while now. I think among big men who had significant roles in the Tom Mezzo era, so say you at least play double-digit minutes a game, um, I would say Julius Marble is clearly the worst rebounder and right there among the worst defenders of anybody in the Izzo era. And that creates a big problem, especially if he's now going to be a 20-minute-a-night guy right. yeah. instead of 15. And, and the reason I say that is, and I'm not knocking Julius from everything I know, very hardworking kid. He's extremely bright. He's an engineering major. Um, but I think some of his limitations as a rebounder and defender are built in. And I don't think they're changeable. Not really. Uh, we've talked about it before here. I think he, his reaction time is so poor as a rebounder and also as a defender. I don't, by this stage of the game, he's played a lot of basketball in his life. I just think that's inherent. And I think that's a really hard thing to change. I'd love to be proven wrong by him coming back to Michigan state and getting a lot better, but I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope. Um, Monty Sissoko, I think actually has more upside for sure. Yeah. In those areas, way more. Now, is he ever going to get to be reliable enough to make good on that? I don't know. But I sort of, I know what Julius Marble is. At least I feel I do. You know, there could be given games where he could do what he did at times this year, and he still makes those mistakes, but he goes out and outscores a guy. He's that good offensively that sometimes he can do that. But that's not Tom Izzo basketball, and I don't think that's a blueprint for success very many places. Yeah. Certainly not East Lansing. So, but having said all of that, <laughs> so again, my opinion, they, I thought they needed to add somebody who could help at least as a rebounder and defender. And I feel like there are guys potentially you could get in the portal who would do that. But my understanding is Michigan state did not necessarily feel that way. What I was told is that they were keeping their eyes peeled. If the right guy became available and right guy means a lot of things, not just he put up numbers somewhere. It means a lot it means. Do they think they can get him? Do they think that he's a good fit culturally as a teammate? And do they think he's got the skill set that they need or the strengths that they need to make the team better? If that guy became available, they would be interested, but that they did not see it as a must. That was prior to Marble entering the portal. You would think that they would be looking to add somebody, but we haven't seen them get involved with any big men yet. It hasn't happened. Other than the fact that I know they have continued to work on Julius Marble to get him to come back. So I do not rule that out. He's only scheduled one official thus far. He's going to visit Oklahoma. I think later this month, I can't remember the exact dates, but that's it. That's the only one he's got scheduled. And, and it took a while. It probably took 10 days for even that one to get announced. So I don't know what that means in terms of how effectively Michigan state's message might be resonating to come back. Um, you know, the, the issues with Julius, I think we touched on it, it primarily has to do with family and proximity to home. He's from Dallas and look, this is, I, I remember years ago, it's gotten lost in all this, these other things that we're talking about, but you know, for a long time, there used to be a small faction uh, of the fan base that would, uh, yell and moan about Michigan state 
being too upper Midwest centric right. in its recruiting and got to go national. We're a hall of fame coach, blue blood program. We can pull guys. Well, they've done more of that lately. Absolutely. You know, marble is an example. Um, Kohler's an example. Uh, AJ Hogard is from Pennsylvania. Sissoko was living in Utah. They've done more of that, but this is another end of that. If guys get homesick or they have family issues and I'm not marbles issues are legitimate from what I know. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying he's not entirely in the right for thinking this way, um, but that's the risk you run. When you get away from your, your area, you have a greater chance of these kind of things popping up. It's just reality. So, so I don't know what MSU is going to do. Again, we've got, as we're talking here, we got about five and a half hours left. We'll see who else comes in the portal as available. We will see um, if Michigan state starts to indicate an interest in anybody who comes in late, or maybe somebody who's been in there a while and they haven't jumped at yet. We'll, we'll just have to see, but it's, it's kind of hard to imagine them going into the season with Kohler and Sissoko as the two options. Um, very difficult to imagine, but Tom Izzo knows more than we do. So he may be, he may be much more convinced about where Jackson Kohler is. He may be much, much more convinced about the strides that are possible or likely for Madi Sissoko this off season. And he could well be right if that's how he's leaning. But Right now, we don't we don't see anything. Right, and I think you don't know, uh, you don't know the impact of going after a fight. Maybe they think they have a good chance of hanging on to Marble, or they're saying, well, now if we announce we're going to go after some five, that Sissoko enters the portal, and now you've lost some depth as well, right? I mean, there's all these sorts of you got parts, it. right? You always have to be you got it. So let's talk about Christie yep. because he's an intriguing player. I, it's funny because you know when you when the start of the season, everyone was super excited about him, and I, I think in many ways he was had a semi-successful season, right? He was defensively, I think he was really good. I think he obviously could have been stronger and offensively he struggled at times, had some good games, but for the most part uh, did not shoot nearly as what he looks like he should be able to shoot. And I think if you told people at the beginning of last season that he's only, he'd be a one and done or he might enter the transfer portal leave after the first year, I think people would have been very sad. And now I feel people have almost accepted it and are kind of okay with it. But I think if he comes back, it would not be a terrible thing either. I mean, I think it'd be very positive. Yeah. Um, my answer to that would be, it depends <laughs> on a lot of things. Um, I, I believe we've touched on the circumstances surrounding his departure, yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I can't remember what we've talked about here versus all my other conversations. Yeah, right. I, have. I think we've talked about it. So, the big thing for me is not even so much does he want to be there because I don't think it was ever, I'm not under the impression that it was ever, Oh, Max is unhappy. He really wants out. But sometimes that doesn't matter so much because the player, the individual is affected by those around them. That they trust, they love, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so I think in his case, the situation is, does he want to be part of this based on all of that? And I just don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't think anybody can. My understanding is he has been going full bore since, you know, early to mid April in terms of preparing for the draft. Now, from what I've seen, and I'm no expert on it, but from what I've seen, it doesn't appear super likely that he would be a first round pick, but it's probably 
pretty likely that he'd be drafted. So is that enough? Is being a second-round pick enough? And it's it's not the way it used to be where the analysis used to be, hey, if you're not a first-round pick, nothing's guaranteed and you've got to weigh that in. We're living in a different world now. A lot of second-round guys get, at the very least, guaranteed two-way deals. Sometimes they get guaranteed just a regular contract, just like a first-rounder does. Um, and so that might be enough for Max and those around him. I don't know. I, the next few hours are going to be interesting in that respect. If he doesn't enter the portal, well, that addresses at least one part of this because I had also heard that it was probably either going to be pros or portal. Yeah. That the chances of his staying at Michigan state were very slim. If he doesn't enter the portal, and by the way, that doesn't affect his pro thing. He can have lots of guys do that where uh, uh, Kofi Coburn did that last year and then ended up going back to Illinois. Um, it would just give him the option. It wouldn't. It also wouldn't necessarily mean there was no option for him to come back to Michigan State, but I think practically speaking, the handwriting would be on the wall from what I know if he entered the portal. If he does not enter the portal tonight, then you'd have to say there's at least a chance that he comes back to MSU. I don't. I wouldn't even want to begin to try to handicap it other than I would say, in my mind, it's still probably pretty low. Yeah. But, you know, uh, somebody mentioned a, and I'm, I saw this, I believe, on one of the message boards, um, that supposedly Indiana fans were talking about um, Christie as a possible transfer option to IU because I believe his girlfriend has transferred there, was a women's basketball player. And, uh, the Indiana writer, a guy named Jeff Rabjohns, who's been around forever, like, I don't know, 30-some years, so he's kind of a reliable voice, supposedly said he doesn't see any chance for that. He, in fact, was talking to Izzo at one of these EYBL events recently, and Izzo was talking to him about how they planned on using him if he didn't go pro. With the subtext there being he didn't, he didn't think it was – the, the writer didn't think it was likely at all that he was going to look to transfer, right. that it was either going to be he stays in the draft or goes back to MSU. If, th if that's how it goes down, then, you know, maybe he does come back to MSU. And I think in terms of him fitting in, just as an individual, I don't think there's any problem. Izzo loves the kid, and he liked the way he played. He just didn't have enough offensive success, yeah you know? But he played him a ton. I mean, I think he, he was either first or second in minutes played. Right. So yeah, right. You can't say, well, he held that freshman back. He had a guy who was really struggling shooting the ball and he still played him a boatload, you know. Um, so I guess you don't rule it out. I will admit I haven't heard anything recently about where things stand between he and MSU. Uh, I think in part that's because he's been in California training. Right. So how much communication is there? I don't know. But um I just know that the way things went at the end of March and beginning of April was not great. Yeah. It was not what you would hope for. Um, and so we'll see, but I think Michigan state, it, it's interesting. They have not reacted in any manner suggesting that they are desperate. Right. <laughs> and that could be for a few reasons. So we, we can look, there was one guy, they had clearly offered and scheduled for an official Jalen Bridges who ended up committing to Baylor right before he was going to take his official to MSU. 
that was a bit of a surprise because I had been told by some good Michigan State sources that they thought they had a great, great chance to land him. And they didn't, obviously. So that one has come and gone. They did have a visitor last week, a guy named Micah Parrish um, from Oakland. Uh, he's played two years there, 6'6". Six, six. I would call him a 3-4 hybrid, so he can play on the wing, can play at the four. Uh, he's from River Rouge. I think I mentioned him a while back in this podcast. And then did a post-grad year at Hillcrest Prep in Arizona and then ended up at Oakland for two years. He started 57 of 59 games in his two years at OU. So he's been a regular starter for a pretty good Horizon League program. So it'd be a multi-year transfer, theoretically, at least. We have to say theoretically because the portal has obviously made this year to year now. Um, last year, he averaged 12.1 points and six rebounds a game in 34 minutes. Shot 44% from the floor, 35% from three, 80% on the season. Here's the part I really like, and I'm sure Tom Izzo likes. He was also on the All-Horizon defensive team. So this is a guy who can do a lot of things. You're not looking at him to come in and be a star. He's not going to be Max Christie. But he can clearly guard people. There's a suggestion that he's versatile enough to help you offensively in a variety of ways. I will also note um, he had 19-8 and eight against MSU. So he produced against Michigan State. He's a Michigan kid. I presume this would be uh, something of a dream for him. So he'd probably come in with the right attitude. Um, there's a lot to like there. He visited last week. There has not been a commitment as of yet. I would suspect that might be in part what we've been talking about, that we're waiting to see where the dust settles after tonight. And then maybe you would see something. I haven't heard about him taking any other visits. The other reason I think he's important is I mentioned MSU is not reacting in a panicked way, it seems. There was an interesting article. Did we talk about the article? I think we did uh, around Joey Hauser in the Lansing State Journal. No, that was his last episode. We have not actually talked about just how he's okay. just how he's in, so, enjoyed the season and how it ended. Yeah. And so that was obviously a big factor for Joey deciding to come back. I think. The impression I had was maybe in December or January, if you'd asked him, he probably would have said, yeah, I'm done. And then things got a lot better for him. But what was interesting in this context is he was asked about, um, you know, playing the four and he and Malik Hall at that spot. And he said he hoped and had reason to believe that they'd be able to play on the floor together a lot more. And he was not talking about Joey playing the five. He was talking about Joey playing the four and Malik playing the three. That also dovetails with something Tom Izzo said earlier in April, where he mentioned that they were planning on working Malik more on the wing. I understand that some have skepticism around that, <laughs> but you can be as skeptical as you like. I think it's probably going to happen. And that's no matter who they add. I think they're going to try to play Malik and Joey together more than they were able to this year. Cause I think they like that combination. And frankly, I do too. Now, does it all fit together that way? I don't know, but it kind of depends on what Malik's able to do this off season, but I think it's got a chance of working um, offensively for sure. I think it's got a chance of working. I think, you know, Malik would have to improve 
and, and become more second nature, his ability to run the lanes and transition. He hasn't been asked to do that the way MSU has its wings do it. But if you look at his ability to shoot, I think his ability to break guys down in penetration, he reminds me an awful lot in that area of Aaron Henry. I think he's a better passer than he gets credit for being. I think he could do okay, particularly given certain matchups. Can he guard wings on the other end? Can he guard those guys well enough? That's the question. But I think he's got a chance. I don't see athletic limitations that suggest to me, oh, there's no chance. Like maybe if you were trying to do it with Joey, you'd say, all right, that's that's probably not going to work on the defensive side. But with Malik, it might. So if you factor that in, I, it's easier for me to see how Micah Parrish fits because he's also a guy capable of playing the three and the four. If, if you're going to play Malik a fair amount at the three, you probably want another guy capable of filling in that mix of maybe playing the four along with Joey, right? Yeah, it right. makes more sense. Um, so that makes some sense to me. It also suggests to me why they may not be particularly panicked about adding somebody regardless of what Max does. Because if Malik can help you on the wing and you add Parrish, well, you got Malik, you got Parrish who can play there. You got Jaden Akins. Um, you've got Pierre Brooks. People should not forget about him. I think if he has a good offseason, I think he could take a big leap forward. And I expect that from Akins. Um, and then you have that trio at the point of Tyson Walker, AJ Hogard, and the incoming Trey Holloman, all of whom I think can play together. So, you know, we already saw it with Walker and Hogard last year, and Holloman absolutely can play on or off the ball. So there's a lot of possibilities, and you, when you think about that, maybe it's less important to add a, a big-time wing. You know, yeah. I just I throw that out there for consideration. Well, and it's certainly if you feel confident that that Parrish is yours if you want him, right, then I think it's a lot it's it's an easier discussion to for that. Yeah. Um, well, let's. Talk- and I think he's a good, you know, he'd be a good, he makes sense as an addition because you're not asking him to come in and be a focal point, which is where sometimes I think Big Ten programs have gotten into trouble when they make mid-major additions. They, they add a guy who, po- who posted good numbers at a lower level and are adding him in an important spot. They're saying, we need you to be a starter or we right. need you to be a scorer. Now, some guys pull it off, but more guys more often than not don't. And that's where you can get into trouble. I think Michigan State would be looking at Micah Parrish as a guy who can be a piece of the rotation. You know he can guard people, which is a great place to start. You think he can probably rebound well for a guy that size. That's a good place. And he's shown enough offensive versatility that you figure at least he's not going to He's not going to bog things down when he's out there. Those are all nice things to have, even if he's only like a 15 minute a night guy. Sure. And I think he could succeed in that role. Right. You know, and, and it's it, not unrealistic. And the thought that you could have him play the three and the four, he could, he's, he can spell Hauser at the four. And then you have Bleak can sometimes play the four. If you want to put Brooks and Akins on the court, I mean, they're, they're de- playing three or yeah, it definitely gives you lots of options. Assuming everyone stays healthy. So we talked about name, image and likeness, which is uh, everyone who talks about NIL. And this is the notion that you can, you basically now can, players can sell their, their name, image, likeness. They can sell, they can get, get revenue from appearing in advertisements or 
selling like autographs and things that people have gotten in trouble before with the NCAA. And we talked about that before briefly where you made the moral argument for it. The, you know, the, the system we have, the system of economics we have in this country is one of free markets, generally speaking, and that you are allowed to get the fruits of your labor. And for many years, college athletes made a lot of money and they weren't able to reap any of those benefits. Uh, they made a lot of money for schools. The schools will sell their jerseys and they'll, you know, put them on posters, or whatever. And people obviously, you know, they put in video games and all these sorts of things. And they get the they get the revenue from that, and the players get a tuition, which is not nothing. Um, but let's have a little bit deeper discussion about it because I think you know we made the I think made the moral argument why that's okay that that players can get compensated for because we don't expect that limitation for anyone else on the college campus in any other capacity. Athletes are different because it's a way of trying to make more fair competition, right? That you have uh, athletes that aren't paid. How do you see this changing things? Because, I mean, I guess on my on first blush, I look at it and say, everything that's happened is actually exactly what I expected to happen. That it became this sort of, you have these huge amounts of money that are suddenly attracting players in college football and to a lesser extent, college basketball. And that you're, it's part of the recruitment process now for either players who are existing players or players who are incoming out of high school. Uh, and that what was maybe happening under the table before uh, what was that? What was the movie with Nick Nolte and Shaquille O'Neal? Was it Blue Blue Chips or something? Blue Chips. Yeah. <laughs> Where they like yeah. giving this parents a tractor or something? They're doing all the, all that sort of. They're buying players, right? And we all know this happened. I mean, it happened down the road, right? In Michigan, there were a number of probably with a Fab yeah. Five and with tractor trailer and and money went to family members and automobiles and those sorts of things. Now, of course, that's all allowed for the most part, and it's absolutely going to be make with the college game much more professional in that sense. But I think it presents a huge risk to the college game in general. And that you can, if these teams just become basically like minor league teams, yes, they have your alma mater on the front of it and you may be excited about them. But at some point when they they lose the fact that they're actually in college, it's sort of like, this is the team brought to you by Michigan state or brought to you, you know, brought to you by pool and weed eater and university of Michigan I wonder how that's going to that affects the game long term, and that's this is not even getting into discussion, which I think we'll talk about next. But uh, about the breaking up of the NCA, but how do you just see in general sort of NIL's impact? Let's say for the next five years, outside of the the conference break, <laughs> conference breaking up. Well, well, it's that is that is an important part of it, though. Yeah, for, for the following reasons, when when you you know you the court the courts got us here okay and the ncaa has been reticent for forever to allow for direct compensation of athletes so we allow students to where i worked jobs when i was enrolled at msu i imagine you may have as well while you were an undergrad a lot of people do uh, as an athlete, generally speaking, you're prevented from that during the school year, at least. So we tell them on the one hand, you can't work. We also tell them this other thing you do, <laughs> which is a job. Yes. We're not going to compensate you for. And it, that might have been one discussion in 1950. It is another discussion in the environment we've seen, particularly in a hyper-realized way, over the last 20 years where we have seen television contracts for rights go through the roof 
particularly for the Big Ten and SEC, but for all the high major, the Power Five conferences. Um, we have seen the knock-on effect of that in facilities. We've seen it in coaches' salaries. We've seen it in other athletic department figure salaries. All of these things have skyrocketed. What didn't change? The amount of money that the labor that produces all that value received, zero. So this is where we get into the moral argument. Um, we have prevented, intentionally, the schools, the universities, and the NCAA have argued against this idea that student athletes should be considered employees. Okay, because if they were employees, well, then at that point, you pay them a wage, just like anybody else, right? Now, those there are those who will argue that, well, the compensation for their labor is a scholarship. Um, if you look at the money, that, that argument might fly at Moorhead State. <laughs> it does not fly at Michigan State. It does not fly economically. It does not fly morally. Bottom line. And I'm saying this as somebody who loves the tradition of college athletics, all of that. But fair is fair, right is right. So when we had court decisions come down the pike a couple of years ago that opened the door to NIL, as you mentioned, it did not see, it did not take Nostradamus to see what was coming, right? Yeah. You knew this was going to be used by schools as a workaround to do the things that had been happening illegally for decades and decades. Probably, actually, if you look at it, for the entirety of the time there's been intercollegiate sports, because you can go back to the late 19th century and find schools actually hiring guys who weren't even enrolled to play for their teams, ringers. That existed. Look it up. Um, so I think the NCAA made a decision for whatever reason, I think mostly because they knew they weren't up to it, to be quite honest, that they weren't going to put in any regulations around NIL. What they were hoping for, and it looked like might happen for a while, for a minute, was that Congress would get involved. State legislatures have, have gotten involved. And so the rules from state to state vary a bit. But I think the hope was, okay, Congress is going to come in. They're going to impose a federal standard, and that will give us a structure. That has not happened. And increasingly, it does not look like that's going to happen. There was a very interesting article, which I, I posted about on the Spartan Mag Board this past week, uh, in Sports Illustrated, uh, written by Pat Forde, who's not one of my favorites, but it was an interesting, it was an interesting subject. I, it, one of the reasons he's not one of my favorites is I don't think he asked all the follow-ups that should have been asked, but it was still interesting. He interviewed Jack Swarbuck. Jack Swarbuck is the athletic director at Notre Dame. He is a longtime power player in the world of college athletics. And he was speaking, it's why I don't think we can divorce the subject of NIL from the subject of structure of collegiate sports, because I think they are now to some extent interrelated um, in part because of all the chaos we're seeing. Um, you just had a situation at the university of Miami, not a traditional basketball power. <laughs> no. Um, where they brought in a kid uh, in the portal named Nigel pack, who had a great year at Kansas state. 
and trumpeted. Miami is ahead of the curve with a lot of uh, from a lot of programs and that they have a much more fully articulated and functioning NIL type program, largely under the auspices of one booster. I think it's the guy who runs LifeLock, the financial security sure. company. Um, it, he's kind of, he's their Matt Ishbia, but it's a much more blatant and feels a little, a lot more grotesque and squirmier. It's South Florida, right? It's a different Matt culture. Yeah. But that's my end. It's what you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, they Anyway, they, they bought Nigel Pack. And trumpeted this four hundred grand a year for two years of eligibility he has an eight hundred thousand dollar deal, and I think he got a car thrown in. It was it was quite a deal. Now Miami managed to get to the Elite Eight this year in the tournament, and they had a kid named Isaiah Wong who led them there and still had eligibility. Players can now have agents for their NIL deals, so his agent made a public pronouncement that uh, Miami, meaning this non-directly affiliated booster, had 24 hours to provide a better deal for Isaiah Wong or he was going to enter the portal because he felt, well, they're bringing in this guy who hadn't done anything for this program. I just took us to the Elite Eight. I'm worth a million. <laughs> Again, does it did it take Nostradamus to see this coming? I, if anything, I'm surprised it took this long. Yeah. So there was a huge kerfluffle about this. And then Isaiah Wong actually came out and said, uh, maybe 48 hours later, hey, this guy doesn't speak for me. I'm fine, blah, blah, blah. It was after the LifeLock guy came out and said, hey, we love Isaiah Wong, but we're not renegotiating. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know where any of that crap is going to stop. And I, I don't even mean to say crap because it's understandable. Again, if we're in a market economy, you know, he can't force the guy from LifeLock to pay him more. But if he has if he has the ability to go somewhere else and get a better NIL deal from somebody else, well, why shouldn't he? Now, it looks like in this situation, he's not going to end up doing that. But it's illustrative of the issue. Right. Um, There is a story out there that I, I don't think has fully resolved yet that the Bolitnikoff award winning <laughs> wide receiver, and I'm drawing a blank of his name yeah. from Pitt uh, played against MSU in the peach bowl is apparently going to transfer to USC and NIL was in the specter there too, as well. Before he entered the portal, that so, was, the, that was the thing he hadn't even entered the portal yet. Yeah, and he'd already worked on the portal. Yeah. Again, if you don't think that there are back channels going on all the time around this stuff, you're crazy. It truly is the wild, wild west. Going back to Forday's article in in Sports Illustrated with Jack Swarbuck, Swarbuck mentioned that. He said, we are in a wild, wild west scenario. There are no regulations. He is of the opinion, and when he walked through it, it intuitively made sense to me, that this is not probably going to be solved by Congress because if you politically handicap the conventional wisdom in terms of handicapping the upcoming midterm elections would be at the moment, as we sit here, that Republicans will gain control of both the Senate and the House. That's not a lock. A lot of things can change, but that's conventional wisdom. Sure. If for no other reason than it's normal, 
that the party in incumbency tends to lose in midterms. I think there are other factors at work here, inflation, et cetera. We've talked about this for days that make it more and more likely that that will happen. And if you look at the Republican Party as we sit here today, it, it, we're not talking about the Republican Party of the 1960s and the 1970s or even most of the 80s where you might say, well, these guys understand this is a business and they want to help impose a structure that's workable. No, you're dealing with a Republican Party that is very, very much opposed to governmental intervention on almost every single front imaginable, right? I think that's an uncontroversial statement. And that's what Swarbuck believes. And so if you take that as being accurate, what is the likelihood that a Republican-led Congress is going to want to come in and impose structure on this? Pretty near zero. So I don't think that's going to happen. He doesn't, for sure. So then the question becomes, okay, we're in this Wild West situation. You've got lots, you know, Izzo, by the MSU fan base at least, gets taken to task for the negative things he says about the portal. Not so much NIL, but about the portal in specific. Um but it misses the whole range of high profile coaches, including guys like Nick Saban that have recently been speaking out of it. Bill self the other day of all people, when Bill <laughs> self is saying a system like this is unsustainable, pay attention. So all of these guys are saying this isn't going to work. There are some who speculate that it's part of the reason Jay Wright retired kind of out of the blue. I don't know if that was the only thing or the biggest thing, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's a factor, you know? Um, so the guys who do this for a living think this is unsustainable. We have, we have no structure. It's, it's a situation where all the power entirely rests in the hands of labor, which you might say is a little bit of payback for a century's worth of it, not of them not having any power. And I wouldn't, be disinclined to argue i would be wouldn't be disinclined to argue with that but when you're trying to put a system together that works and keeps fan interest and all that it's it's not great but that's where we are um players have the ability to make whatever deal somebody's willing to make with them under nil and nobody nobody is looking through these things and and trying to enforce some kind of ncaa regulation the only the only way you could get into trouble, I would think, is if it, something happened with the IRS, you know, where somebody wasn't paying taxes. But that's a different matter. That becomes potentially a criminal matter. It's not what we're really talking about here. Um, and they, and they're free to portal, hit the portal, transfer at least once for free, and have immediate eligibility. So there's no structure. We're seeing it every day in college basketball now, as we've been talking about. So what's the solution? You have this system that everybody thinks is untenable and Congress probably isn't going to come in and save the day. Probably what will solve it is the high major programs. So the power fives and maybe not even all of them will break away from the NCAA and form their own organization. If they do that, then presumably they would be free to impose whatever rules and standards they want on this stuff. I don't think they will go backward with compensation. I think the more reasonable expectation would be they go the other way 
and they maybe start working out a system where you, in essence, sign some kind of contract when you commit to a school and you are compensated for that. I think that's what we'll see. Then the question becomes, as Swarbuck points out in that piece in SI, do all of these schools go all in and under what auspices? So are there some schools that retain a connection to the academic purpose of the university? In other words, you play for the football team, you're a student. And there are academic expectations that are placed on you, blah, blah, blah. Or do schools essentially license the name? And they used an example, Oregon Ducks Athletic Athletics, Inc. Right. And it's a spinoff of the university and the university derives income through a licensing arrangement, but the athletic program doesn't have any direct connection to the university. They might not even have to be enrolled. Um, he seems to think it's likely that many schools will want to go that second route. I have my doubts. And the reason I have my doubts is I think what you were kind of alluding to a while back Um how strong does fan interest remain when yes, they're still wearing Michigan state across the front of the Jersey, but everybody knows they're pros. They're just not yet as good as the guys in the NBA or NFL. And they're not students. And there's not any direct connection with the university other than the licensing rights to use the name. Is that truly the same thing? And do fans care about it the way they used to? I also wonder about how does all that factor in? Somebody on the board pointed this out, and it's a great question. How does that factor in with use of facilities? We've seen schools investing millions and millions and millions of dollars in new stadiums, new football buildings, new basketball offices, uh, practice facilities, on and on and on. How does that work? Are we? Is this new entity going to license the use of that stuff, and that's it? Maybe, but it that seems to me uh, certainly a possible outcome for all this, but unlikely. I think they are going to fight tooth and nail to retain some kind of relationship that's more overt than a licensing agreement. I mean, how do you feel about that? Would you care as much about Michigan State Athletics, Inc.? No, there's no question. It's, it would, right. Yeah, I, I think because I think th- – so what ties people together are things that tie people together, right? The reason that we have, I can run into you, let's say in Cancun, and we're like, oh, you're from Michigan too. We have like a connection, right? Just like you have a connection right. with people because they went to your alma mater or if they're actually at your school, that is your alma mater. I, now there are p- plenty of people who never went to the school who are fans of the school. I totally understand that, but it, it, it still requires that understanding that that person is part of that organization of some, in some way, other than they just have the name across the front of the Jersey. And I think I'm of two ways looking at how this is going to turn out. One is you could say, well, at some point the market's going to figure out where it needs to, it has to find its level, right? It's like water. It just needs to figure out where if it needs to find out what a player's worth in its, in a market, right? So you could say, well, it's crazy. This guy is getting a million dollars and no one on his team is getting anything. Well, at some point you would sort of figure out what, what your value is on the team. And I, uh, and I think that that would probably happen, but that would take some time and it, and it depends where you play and those sorts of things. I mean, I feel like the, a much more likely, uh, likely outcome, because I think it's, I think the bigger schools, they're going to have the bigger revenue. There's no question about that. Um, but they have, they have to, I think you have to maintain the 
for Booster's standpoint, Booster's also won't care if it says Alabama, but they actually aren't students. I right. I think it'll make a difference. Like right. that car dealer guy is like, uh, you know, I mean, the kids play at Alabama. I, even if it's like a nominal sort of thing and he's only there a year and he doesn't really get a degree, I think it makes a difference. And so I think it'd be much more likely that the NCAA stays intact, in, in fact, I think, and they come up with a rule and say, you know what, we're going to have salary caps. And we're going to say that you're only allowed to spend so much for football, so much for basketball, and they may just decide what that is. That seems like a much more likely scenario. And then you can, you have, and that would allow, you know, the small schools can still spend as much as they want, but they only, you know, they can't afford as much, but you would probably limit and you, that would place some limits and it would prevent a lot of the moving around as much and to make it. And I think people would still, kids would still get compensated for their play, but there'd be some expected limitations in that. Now, I'd. I don't know the legal implications of that because if you have salary caps and you have agreements like that, of course, you know, there's antitrust things that you have to deal with Congress and stuff right? like with. There's also something inherent in that. When you say salary cap, that presupposes there's a salary, right? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. a salary, a salary inherently we're talking about employment, which is something they have strenuously avoided. Right. So, look, I agree with you in part, and I disagree with you in part. I agree with you that ultimately some setup like that uh, controls on how much money can be allocated. And something that ties a player to an entity, at least for a period of time, that's what the pros, that's what the professional sports have that is lacking. That's why this is the wildest thing we've ever seen in any high level sport, because you don't have, you got money, but you don't have any of the other end of that equation. The thing that ties labor to an entity, you don't have that part of the contract. It's, It's absent. Right. So I think, right, exactly. So I think those things will exist. Where I differ with you is I do not believe the NCAA will be doing it. I do believe that it's inevitable from everything I understand that the major conferences are going to pull away. And and a big part of the reason, well, there's two reasons. One, there's zero faith in the NCAA as an entity to enforce anything. <laughs> so if you're asking them to put rules in place around this, there'd be zero faith they'd be able to successfully enforce it. If you change the structure you may be able to change some things that actually make enforcement more of a possibility. You know, the NCAA's big issue has long been in rules enforcement, they lack subpoena power. If you can't force someone to answer questions, you're very limited in terms of the scale and scope of what you can do to enforce a rule. Um, I'm not saying that a new entity would have subpoena power, but they may be able to write into their organizational setup much more robust methods of enforcement and accountability. That is possible. Um, They also want out because they're tired of having the system dictated to them by other institutions who who do not share the same concerns. The bulk of the NCAA is not made up of schools whose athletic departments run a surplus. Right, yeah. Right? They have very different ways of looking at things than Michigan State, Alabama, USC do. Rightly so. Rightly so. But if you're one of those have schools, you're getting tired of being tied down by Ferris State, you know. So I do think they're going to break away. The question is timing. And this is where it all gets interesting, sorting this stuff out. 
world. Swarbuck was asked that question. And he thinks, I mean, th this has been talked about for a few years, this breaking away from the NCAA thing. It's not a new subject. Right. But again, it, it, it's, it's gained more urgency now that we have NIL, now that we have the portal, and you see the chaos that is going on. There's an even added sense of urgency to when are we going to get this solved? And the feeling is the NCAA can't and won't do it. So maybe the big schools that are affected by this have to break away and do it themselves in their own new structure. Okay, when can you do that? Swarbuck's feeling is it doesn't happen till the mid-2030s. And the reason for that is, again, money, specifically the television rights deals that all the conferences currently have with Fox, with ESPN, CBS, ABC. That made a lot of sense to me, and I hadn't thought about that immediately, but I think he's got a really, really valid point. Right now, those rights agreements exist, so they're enforceable. And if you tried to break them, if all the schools in the SEC said tomorrow, hey, guess what? We're leaving the NCAA. We're going to do our own thing in this new structure, and that's it. Sorry. See you later. Well, maybe ESPN doesn't like that. And they've got a contract in place and presumably they can hold the SEC to accounts for that. So is it better to try to look at a point where everybody in the mix is more or less a free agent and can time it so that they can leave and form a new structure and cut deals with the conferences, you know, the NCAA is a party to those deals too, I believe. So you then cut them out, you do new deals, et cetera, et cetera, but you'd have to let the current deals run out. That gets us into the mid 2030s. Um, my, my one question in that or reservation is the problem seems so urgent yeah. that I don't, I think it's a non-zero chance that the powers that be who are affected by this, the major schools, will, I don't think you can rule out that they will try to come together and find a way to accelerate this. It would be a massive effort because you'd have to get, you have to get all the networks involved in the discussion, work these things out, cut the deal, the existing deals off, put something new together, put new TV deals together. It's a lot. But they might see this becoming such a problem that they feel there's no choice but to accelerate it. If Swarbuck's right, we're talking about minimum probably another 12, 13 years yeah, before this could happen. Do you think we can live with the current environment that long? I, I, don't. I don't think so, too. I I, I think so, it's probably less than five years where you start having people move and try and solve the problem one way or the other. Well, another interesting thing he, he mentioned, which is not surprising to me, but um, I found interesting, is he said... There are there are more schools in power fives. He talked about the fact that, you know, we talk about the power fives as this monolithic thing, but they're not. The Big Ten and the SEC are in their own stratosphere. And then the ACC, Big 12, Pac-12 come in substantially lower. We've seen this at Michigan State. Michigan State went out and bought a Pac-12 schools coach, Mel Tucker, right. from Colorado. Just flat out bought him. Why? Because they had a lot more money. That wouldn't have happened in 1985. Hell, I'm old enough to remember when Pac-10 schools took 
coaches from the Big Ten. They took Arizona State took Bill Frieder from Michigan. Uh, Arizona State took Daryl Rogers from Michigan State. You know that it was a much more equitable playing field. It is not now. So Swarbuck said he is aware of several schools that want to move conferences right now, but can't because of existing rights deals. I am 99% sure he is talking about schools in the ACC. And the reason I say that is twofold. One, I know that the ACC has kind of a death pact with its member schools that if they leave, the punishment, financial, financially speaking, is so severe that you could never do it. And two, Notre Dame has that affiliation with the ACC, so he would have reason to know a lot more. He didn't name schools, but it's easy to see. I mean, this latest round of reshuffling where Texas and Oklahoma went to the SEC, um, there were rumors that the, I saw that the Big Ten was looking at schools like Virginia, North Carolina. Yeah. It makes sense. So, so there's that lurking out there, too. Some of these schools are even other Power Five schools are seeing that they are, they're definitely afraid of being left behind because the Big Ten and the SEC have this television money, you know, super booster rocket that is taking them up several levels above even the other power fives. I, I say this to all Michigan State fans, thank God that this school is in the Big Ten because if we were not, there would be much, much bigger problems than is Tom Izzo going to find a five in the portal. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Yeah, there's no question. I, I found, I found the discussion really interesting, and I and there's so many moving parts. It's kind of hard to know how it's going to turn out. But I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's going For to sure. happen. I think it's going to happen soon, sooner rather than later. You wonder the landscape of what's going to happen afterwards. Maybe the you know, NCA 2.0, something, some other designation. I still feel like for the NCAA tournament, for basketball tournament, it's a great event. And, and you, you wonder how, and because it has teams like St. Peter's and you know, the, those teams that participate that ordinarily you would never see. And I think that adds part of the excitement to it. And I think if it was yes. just, if it was just like the champions classic times four, I don't think it, nearly as many people would be interested in watching it. It would not, it would certainly wouldn't get the gambling you, you money hit. In it or whatever. Right. And so that, be, that's what I see getting hurt the most. Probably football may even be better off. I don't know when it comes to, you, know, you may have a better tournament. I think, I think you've hit on exactly the difference between the two major sports in football. You could make an argument that it does nothing but improve things, especially if it comes along with a better playoff system, which I think it would. Um, you eliminate these buy games, which, you know, yeah, you don't have, you wouldn't any longer have the Appalachian state over Michigan thing, but let's be honest, that stuff doesn't happen that no. often. And I think in football terms, far more often than not, the buy games are, uh, they're rapidly becoming non-events. If you look at attendance, like actual bodies in the stands, for those games in recent years. And I'm talking anywhere. I don't just mean Michigan state. I mean, look at Alabama, look at Ohio state. Those buildings are not full for those games. I think fan interest in that kind of thing is waning. So you can make an argument that this is actually better for football. And because football drives the bus financially, that's going to dictate what they do. Right. Basketball, on the other hand, I agree with you hundred percent. 
it takes a huge hit. The NCAA's most valuable property is the NCAA tournament. It's huge. And I don't think there's any way that that event retains the level of interest that it has currently if we move to a breakaway situation where it's all power programs. I mean, one interesting thing would be in that kind of scenario, what happens to a league like the Big East? Because they have no football right. in that conference. I'm trying to think if anybody's got a football yeah. program. Missouri Valley is another example too. They don't have conference. any they have they're like division three football but, teams. But but the Big East but the Big East is particularly salient because the Big East can contend for national championships right, yeah, in basketball. Right, right. right? We know that. They can win them. <laughs> yeah. If are they coming along? It's hard to imagine how they would because they don't have football as a driver, so they're not valuable. But you're taking them out of the equation. It's and this is just occurring to me as we're talking. But, you know, I read um, a book not too long ago on the history of Catholic basketball colleges that play Catholic colleges that play basketball. So going back, you know. World War II, basically, and and since. And maybe what we end up with is, in basketball only, is something that looks more like the way it did in the 50s with the NIT and the NCAA tournament, which were really competing entities. And you didn't truly have, I mean, I know the NCAA declares whoever wins (laughs) their tournament is the national champion, but trust me, there were a lot of years prior to the 60s where the best team in the country is probably one that didn't play in the NCAA tournament at all. I wonder if that's where we get, but then the question becomes what kind of TV money is left for the big East and the Missouri Valley and the Atlantic 10 and all these leagues. I don't know. The sport of basketball is much more vulnerable here. I think in terms of quality, I I don't believe there's any question about that for all these reasons, but it's going to get dragged along football will will call the tune there's no question about that when you look at college athletics a very tiny fraction the only other revenue sport would be hockey which is probably mostly a money loser in most schools and I some guess. places baseball yeah but some places baseball in the south southwest but you wouldn't expect that that but it's mine and you wouldn't expect that that would play much influence i mean obviously you know if the ncaa busts apart and football and basketball are part of it you could say well maybe the ncaa still exists for the for the non-revenue sports like swimming and tennis and all those and golf and such. I don't know. I mean, it, there, there are a lot of things that could happen and I don't even know how you could even predict until you know, sort of how the structure is going to be really at the end. Right. And it's, it's a black box at the moment. And I, I, I don't think we're going to know tomorrow, but I also, uh, Jack Swarbuck's a smart guy. He knows a hell of a lot more than me, but um, I just find his time frame to be unrealistic. Yeah. I just don't think it can wait that long yeah, well, it, before we start answering some of these things. I feel like we've seen the football or the the uh, the big deals in money for basketball. I can only imagine what it's going to be like after next football season. I think you're going to have a lot more. Well, I mean, hey, they're already starting, but te- it's going to be even Texas, bigger. I think Texas Tech is it Texas A M has A&M, a big huge yeah yeah in football, and that is yeah, it's tip of the iceberg. What we're going to see, you know. Yeah, it's a fascinating time, but I think if anybody is convinced they know exactly how it's going to unfold, they're kidding themselves. There's just a lot of uncertainty. The only thing I think you can bet on is pretty radical change. Yeah. 
that I think is safe, but what form it takes, who knows? I, I only hope that it still feels like college athletics. Um, and I, well, you know, that's, that's the thing. Cause if it's going to be like, you know, I, I think we forget in this country how unique college athletics is. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world where you have oh. college at, where you have athletics that people care about the, what's going on in their colleges. It, I mean, where it's basically like a minor league system, like for soccer, there are all kinds of minor league clubs, but they're minor league clubs that just feed into eventually players end up at bigger I, leagues. Right. I can tell you, um, I had, um, a couple of uh, close friends when I was in high school, they were, uh, I played tennis when I was in high school and, um, that tended to be a sport for whatever reason. We tended to have a lot of exchange students who ended up as tennis players. And so I had a couple of close friends who were on the tennis team and the thing they absolutely loved about their high school experience here. So we're not even talking college was the way that athletics were connected to school. So the Friday night football game right. blew their minds, <laughs> absolutely blew their minds. Because, yes, if you were an athlete who's 15, 16 years old in Germany or Denmark, sure, there's ample opportunity for you to participate in sports, but it's done via clubs. Yeah. So either it can be a local club, it could maybe be a major, like if you're an English kid, maybe you sign at 12 years old for Chelsea or Arsenal and you go into their youth system. So you have the opportunities to play, but nobody, relatively speaking, cares. These guys were coming over here and going to a football game, which, you know, in, in I think it's changed a little bit since I was in high school. But, you know, you'd have 2,000, 3,000 people at a high school football yeah. game in my era. And I think in some places still is, is not uncommon. You know, their minds were blown away by that. It is emotionally an entirely different thing, whether you are playing or you are just a fan. Then take that to the collegiate level. Yeah. Absolutely, it's true. I agree with you, and it's why I think that's – look, I, I felt in that article, it should, I should mention this, Swarbuck was, men was, was talking about this dichotomy and in a negative way and saying, you know, there are these schools that, you know, they're just interested in the financial end of this and they never really cared about academics. And so they'll be willing to do Oregon Ducks Athletics Inc. Uh, and make money and nobody cares about academics, whereas other institutions, he didn't say it, but it was clearly implied, like good old Notre Dame, right. holier than thou, <laughs> will want to strive to keep a connection to academics. All right. I understand he's talking his book because he's the Notre Dame athletic director and he wants to hold them up as the example of all that is holy and right. But I assure you, for one, Notre Dame is going to do everything it needs to do to be on the right side of whatever happens financially. Yeah. Be certain of that. But but two, I think he underestimates the thing that you and I are talking about, if that's what he really believes. Um, I think it is a much harder thing than he is giving credit for to make Oregon Ducks Athletics Inc. work. Financially, it's harder because for the finances to work, you have to have the interest at the same level. And the interest is driven by emotion and connection. I think if you go that route, it is, it is not very far removed from what the NBA has been attempting to do with the G League. And you know what? Nobody cares about the G League. Nobody. 
Nobody watches it. Nobody goes to the games, relatively speaking. The only minor league sport that works in this country is baseball. And the reason that it works is prime is not based on emotion or connection to the team winning or losing a game. It's based around the idea that it's an entertaining and relatively affordable way to enjoy an evening with your family in the summer. That's why minor league baseball works. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cares who wins or loses. Have you ever been to those games? I, I, yeah, I've, it's a circus. I've been, I've gone to lots yeah. and they're fun and it's for great. families. Yeah. Right. It's great. But nobody cares. No, nobody cares about the outcome. And that's the one that works. You look at basketball and, and football really doesn't even have anything along those lines. It doesn't work. This kind of setup, this licensing and a spinoff kind of deal, I think starts to get perilous, perilously close to that setup. And I don't think the name on the jersey reading Michigan State would change the, the uh, lack of emotional attachment that much for most people. So I don't agree with him that that's the way we're probably going to go. I don't think so. Yeah. I think they will do everything they can to maintain some type of connection to the academic purpose of the university while addressing these other things to give it, stay on the right side of the law, but give it a structure that works for everybody, works for the athletes and works for the institutions and keep it going. And yeah, you can say it'll still be a fiction and these guys aren't really students. They're, they're mercenaries and, you know, they're just waiting to go to go pro and they're being paid now. And that changes everything. I don't believe it has to be that way. I think there are ways to thread the needle on this, but we'll see. Yeah, I think I, I, absolutely we'll see. And and I think when it comes down to the finances, uh, there is a there's a huge risk. And I hope that they recognize what it is, because once you've lost it, I don't think you get that back. I don't think you can go back and say, whoops, no. whoopsie, and go back and then nope. you'll because that fan base takes generations to build up and it's, it's, you know, you take your kids to the game and the grant you're with grandpa or whatever. You suddenly break that. You've seen that with baseball, right? They, you strike enough people. You'll never get the, that fan base back. And you, yeah, you hit the TV many, I suppose, but it's not ever going to be the same product. And especially when you have an inferior product, like a minor league team, I think it's, it's gonna be a lot harder to get that that's, back in. There's, there's the thing. And that's an, that's an important point to hit. So we can all agree that quality of play in college athletics versus professional athletics is de facto inferior in the college game, right? Because they're younger, they're not as well-developed, and because it's drawing from a broader talent pool, the teams overall are not as good. This is all very obvious. Nobody should need it said, but I'm just saying it to illustrate the point. What makes college athletics work, I think for me, and probably for just about everybody, is that emotional connection we're talking about. That is why people care. They don't care because, well, this is the best football product I can view. If they want that, they go watch the NFL. If you no longer, if you sever that emotional connection, I, why does anybody really care? Yeah. It, you know, and that's why I think that's the primary reason why I don't think they'll go that far, because I'd like to think there are enough smart people involved that recognize that reality. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, but I don't think so. I mean, there are smart people all the time who make mistakes. And so we'll have to hope that that doesn't happen. And to your, that's, to your point with the high school, I, I totally agree. Maybe aware people. How about that? Well, yeah. Maybe people that are aware. But, you know, it's, we won't limit it to smart. It depends on who's one making the decisions. Right. You can have plenty of people who say who warned of this, that, you know, this may have 
consequences and still people ignore right. that and say, well, the money is so much better. Uh, but just to your point with the, with the high school football, the reason high school football is exciting and people are go to the games is because it's part of the community. It's part of your attachment to that. Exactly. It, it has nothing to, exactly. it, this is the same reason. Yeah. I go to plenty of Whitecaps games or, you know, lug nuts games. No one, no one cares. It's just a fun, even the mud hens. I'm sure that people don't get that upset about the mud hens, but they do well. And that's the triple A. No. That's like one step down. No, the I've been to, I, I've been to, I've been to my, I've been to a ton of minor league baseball games over across the country. Um, I've done trips with friends of mine where we go to minor league games in you know, seven different cities, all levels, rookie ball to triple A. One thing is common. Nobody cares who wins or loses. <laughs> Nobody. Just the players. Yeah. And the coach. Just the play. Even they don't care so much because really those guys are primarily interested in progressing. So it's about, I don't mean that they play selfishly, but it's primarily about individual development because you want to get to the majors. Right. Yeah. You know, I suppose you look at the playoffs and you want to win at that point, the championship, but yeah, during the regular season. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You want to get picked up by the next, the, the level up. Well, that was a yeah. great discussion. Uh, I hope people got a lot out of the recruiting and NIL. And uh, if you have any, what's your opinion, I guess, when you're listening to this, uh, leave us a, send us a note, drop it at TFFINOTS at gmail.com. And until next time, Rod, the final four is not on the schedule. Go green. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.